Hey lovelies, before we get started, I have some very exciting news to share with you. Starting next week, there will be a place where you can see and feel and try on impact fashion pieces in person. The address is a new department store inside the American Dream Mall catering to the modest consumer. It's packed with tons of different brands. Think clothing, jewelry, makeup, accessories, kids stuff, housewares, like literally everything is in there. The project is enormous and I'm so proud to be a part of it and so excited for you all to experience it. The first day of shopping is Tuesday, February 14th. So the week after this episode first airs and I will be in store then on the 14th uh, from about 11 a.m. to chat with and style you all and officially my slot is only till noon but I can't imagine that I'm actually leaving at noon so like I'll be there I'll be around impactfashionnyc.com is coming to the real world and I'm so excited and I can't wait for y'all to get a chance to experience it to see you in person when you try in the collection and I'm have I said that I'm excited has that come up yet oh the address at American Dream Mall February 14th. I can't wait to see you there. And for now, enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I talk with a journalist about her career path. She shares how overwork in a toxic environment led to an amount of stress her body couldn't handle, changing her whole life only to end up in another toxic environment, and how both of those experiences led to her look more into why women were leaving the workforce. heard the phrase, the great resignation. It refers to a time when droves of people, mostly women, were leaving their jobs. Sarah McElroy did this twice and then turned her journalism skills to the women around her in the same situation to learn and share their stories. I was the overachiever and I was the good girl. That's the role I've played my entire life, honestly. And I found so much of my identity and worth in that being the the kid who got the straight A's and did all the things. And, you know, you just, it's kind of something you get hooked on like a drug a little bit because it's like, it's always the praise and validation. It's a dopamine hit. And if you are a lost little kid trying to find your way in the world, what better way to find it than by making everybody you love and you respect around you proud. And so that's who I was. And did you find that that was, that it like, served you well because I find that like in my experience at least and I was to a certain extent also a little bit of the good girl not as much as my older sister but that's a different story and for me I found that to let that it can get you pretty far but then there's always like a point where that oh yeah you know where where it's more for everyone else than for yourself did you have a similar type of experience Absolutely. But that was, that didn't really come honestly until this work with Raised Her Eyes. So it is a funny thing that there are many coping mechanisms or ways of living that we learn. We habituate them over time. They work for us so well, but eventually we do hit a wall and we realize that these things that work for us can become a cage. And that's what that had become for me. And so breaking out of that good girl box was a huge part of this work, not just in this career pivot, but also being able to do that because it's a part of the evolution of Sarah, not just as a professional, but as Sarah, as a human. I'm sure. Let's let's back up for a second. Talk to me about your career path. You know, like you finish high school. I'm assuming you go to college. Like, what do you do? What what are what did you want to be when you grow up? Yes. Well, I wanted to be a journalist. I thought I wanted to be a print journalist. I worked at a small paper in Northeast Wyoming. I was uh, kind of like an editorial assistant over the summer, making 5.15 an hour, I would lay out pages, but eventually they let me go out and write stories and, and do byline articles, not as an intern or as an assistant, but as like a news record writer. And that was the coolest thing in the world for that, you know, little teenage version of me to have that kind of job. And I just loved people's stories. I've long been fascinated I think being a very uh, empathic person, long been fascinated by the human experience and the things that 
make us who we are because there's so much that happens in our lives that shapes us and so many things that we don't even realize have the impact that we do. And when we can see those threads, sometimes we can't see them for ourselves, right? So when we see those threads and how they weave together in other people's lives, that is like really powerful stuff. So I went off to school to the University of Southern California to do a print journalism degree. I got there and I was just like, I just didn't feel like being on deadline every single day, which is kind of like, you know, that's what newspaper writing requires. That felt like a little more stress than I needed for someone who had always just worked to squeeze every ounce of productivity out of myself. I uh, I recently found an old high school planner when my parents were cleaning out storage when they were going into retirement. And it was full in the corners of every page, like completely just full of words. And it wasn't like notes from class. It was all the things I needed to do. And so I got to school and I was like, I just want to do something that's not going to have that much daily pressure. And I loved marketing and PR. So I started down that lane, ultimately transferred to Arizona State where their PR program was more journalism and mass comm. So I ended up with a, a journalism degree, which serves me quite well now doing Race to Rise because that's the hat that I picked back up in January. But, you know, it's just amazing to me how it comes full circle. The, the passion for stories, even as I've been a marketer, hasn't been lost because that's a huge part of marketing too, right? Connecting with people and helping them to see how a product or a service or a brand can serve them. Like stories are the best way to do that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's 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 so natural to tell a story, to want to hear a story, to want to connect through that way that when you utilize that, you know, not only like in a marketing perspective or from a career perspective, all of that has been shown to really, you know, to really help get the message across. So after you had your degree, what'd you do? Yes. Well, my first job out of college was with Cold Stone Creamery Ice Cream in their PR Yum. and marketing department. Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad was... you said that. We love Cold Stone. <laughs> oh my God. It was, so I was an intern actually first, and it was one of those things where there wasn't even an internship. I just reached out to the PR director via the website and asked him if there were intern opportunities. And he said, there isn't a program now, but if you reach out to me the next time you're coming to Phoenix, like I was still in LA at the time I hadn't moved to Phoenix to go to Arizona state yet. So when you're, you're in Phoenix next, let me know, we'll set up time and you can kind of pitch me on what you would do as an intern. And I was like, Oh, that is so strange. I'm going to be there next week. I hadn't bought a ticket yet, <laughs> but, um, I planned it, bought a ticket, put together like a, a proposal of what I would do. And he hired me as an intern for the summer. I thought it would be unpaid, but he actually eliminated another position so that he could pay me in the internship, which is just like the coolest thing. But somebody's like, you're passionate, you're hungry, you're going to work for it, we'll reward you for that. And then it ultimately turned into a job after college too. So I love that so much. I, after that company went through a merger turned acquisition that really wasn't very pretty, I moved to DC to work on Capitol Hill. I worked for a US Senator as a press assistant. I did that for a year and quickly learned that politics is, it is a tough world on Capitol Hill. Like you have to have a really thick skin to see the things that go on behind the scenes and stuff. And I don't regret it at all. I mean, DC, I was in there for, I was there for nine years. I met my husband who's now ex-husband, but like, you know, it was like huge part of my life in being in DC. I met him on the Hill and uh, wouldn't, wouldn't change it, but certainly realized like I'm more, I, I'm more programmed to work in a lighter space, like in the space of like brands and consumers and things like that, that at that time just felt more fun to me versus fighting a fight that felt like it could never be won in politics, as I think some people feel like once you're there for a while, and obviously I wasn't there a long time, but you can start to feel like that, like the fissures and the cracks in the system feel like they're too big to overcome it. So yeah, that's, that's how almost I like ended in up politics. Acting. You're not supposed to win because yeah. there will like there will always be another election. There will always right? be another issue. There will always be yeah. something else that comes up, and it's literally a never ending conversation. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And for me, it was it was more so seeing the infighting within the party themselves. 
that was really hard to see because I just, I love my Senator that I worked for it was Senator Mike Enzi of Wyoming. So my home state Senator, and he was really great friends with Ted Kennedy. And I just thought it was the coolest thing because the two of them were the ranking member and chairman of the health education, labor and pensions committee. And during the two year Congress, before I joined the team, he and Kennedy had passed 20 something bills during a two year Congress. Now to put that into perspective, the average committee would pass in a two year Congress, three bipartisan bills. And I wow. just, I loved that so much. Cause it's like, look at these two reaching across the aisle to uh, put forth bipartisan legislation that is going to help the American people. That's what this is all about working on Capitol Hill. And then I realized that like, that's actually not a lot of how the other politicians see it. And so my Senator was at times punished in not getting the kinds of uh, nominations or, or spots, I guess you could say, on committees, committee appointments, because of that friendship. And the party felt like he was giving too much away by reaching these agreements and doing all this bipartisan legislation for with Kennedy. It was like he's conceding too much. And that just broke my heart, <laughs> my little naive Wyoming girl heart to be like, wait, isn't that the whole point of it is that we're here to work together with our different viewpoints to make America better for all of the, the humans. And it was just like, oh, well, maybe not. I miss ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, what year was this? Like what, what era was this that you were there? Yeah. Well, so it was 2008 into 2009 and it was obviously like a very crazy time, which with what was happening in the economy too. And my Senator was on the, the banking committee. So mm -hmm. I was there taking pictures of him at the big hearing that went down during that time with the chairman of the fed, Ben Bernanke, Hank Paulson, secretary of the treasury and him and all of them being questioned because of the, essentially the financial crisis. And so like really powerful to be there in the midst of all of that. But I think I realized that it was a lot bigger than what my sensitive little heart could take on the daily. <laughs> and there's real power in recognizing that and saying like, oh, yeah. this is not this is not working. This is, you know, I am not yes. this stone cold politician type person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think I just love that you're bringing that point to bear because I deeply believe that we learn as much from the experiences in both our careers and our lives, those experiences that teach us what we definitely don't want, because it's like you have to run into a wall sometimes to be re redirected on a different path that will take you ultimately where you want to be. Yeah. 100%. So you leave politics and you go back to ice cream? Not ice cream, just back into marketing. I worked as a youth marketing specialist for a local parks and recreation department. So oh, that was like yay. an interesting- You're Leslie Nope. <laughs> That's who you are. Yeah. That's it. You will officially well, forever be Leslie Nope in my yeah. head. Great. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and it was, it was funny because the show was really big during that time and uh, thereafter too. And you'd watch it and be like, okay, this is, it's- over the top and farcical, but like not entirely out of the realm of possibility because <laughs> there were some funny things that happened during that time where it's like life imitates art, art imitates life kind of a thing. And uh, yeah, so it was an interesting experience. Well, and I will say like from a career planning standpoint, I had a little bit of a personal crisis during that time because they had an amazing retirement plan. Amazing. Where if you worked in the system for the 30 years, your last three years of highest earning wages, I think you would get 70% or 67% wow. of that for the rest of your retirement once you retired. I mean, that is like a golden ticket, Willy Wonka style in the world these days, like where pensions are as rare as a unicorn or as mythical as a unicorn. And it was one of those things where it's like, Sarah, this is like a really amazing thing for your security and stability. But it was like, I, I cannot do this. I, it, they were wonderful, wonderful humans, but I would meet some people who'd be like, I've been here for 27 days, six months, or I'm sorry, 27 years, six months, 17 days. And I'm this many days from retirement. And it was just like, just kind of moving through the, 
the process every day to, to make it to that point. But, you know, everybody has a different path, right? But I just knew I was wired for more expansion and growth and trying different things and that I would eventually like feel like that was too small at some point. So got back into like PR and marketing. I worked for a, uh, went back to school actually to do a master's in marketing and which I didn't finish. That was an, an interesting turn of events, but didn't finish. But during that time I did PR for uh, chef Spike Mendelson, he was a top chef contestant and his family at their restaurant group on DC, which was like, they had this burger restaurant that was awesome. It was like an Obama family favorite at the time. And that was really super fun. They filmed life at, uh, life after top chef while I was there. So I'm in a little bit of like that show and stuff. And it was just so cool to see behind the scenes, how all of that works. So very, like very random experiences through my career till then, but I was kind of like, just following my heart, honestly, that's what I've always done. I just have kind of known and I've followed it. And and to my understanding, you kind of continued to do that until 2020 came along and nothing exciting in the world happened in 2020. Yeah. There was no major no. events that would have affected yeah. your career in any way. <laughs> right. Yeah, talk, exactly. Talk to me about what the pandemic, yes. you know, where you yes. were holding your career around that time and what that meant. Yeah. Well, after, after, uh, the sort of that last point in getting back into restaurants and stuff, I was like, okay, this is what I really love. And that's mostly what I did was hospitality and restaurants. I did move into a chief marketing officer role with a private equity backed wellness concept that was scaling nationally, but it still really fit in my wheelhouse because what I'd found is that I was working for multi-unit restaurants and there's a whole industry of both franchising and multi-unit management that's seen as a space of expertise. And so what is multi-unit management? I've never heard that term. My, uh, myself. So like, think of the brands that have multi-unit brick and mortar locations. That is multi, like the multi-unit. So a franchise would um, be an example of a multi-unit? Yes. Spot on. The I love you? that you asked that. Yes. Because okay. multi-unit, you can be corporate owned and own all of your units, or you can franchise out and your franchisees own the units, but, and there are obviously very specific differences in how those business models run, but there are a lot of connecting threads when you're running any kind of multi-unit business. It's got interesting challenges that are different right. from just running a regular corporate entity that's, you know, B2B or direct to consumer or things like that. It's a uh, it's an interesting thing when you're taking a concept, a brand, and you're saying, I'm going to figure out how to take this brand, put it in all of these different little cities around the country or the world even, and figure out how to both maintain the integrity and the essence of the brand, but also localize it in a way that right. touches the hearts of the local community. And so that has always been a really fascinating challenge to me, and I've enjoyed very much. And it's kind of like at least in my opinion, the model is really 80-20, like 80% yeah. of the brand, the processes, all of those things, like those need to stay in a very organized, systematized fashion, but then you allow for the 20% of flexibility to uh, adapt to local, regional preferences, things like that. That's very cool. So you were doing that when COVID hit? Well, I switched within a couple months of COVID headed to, or after COVID hit, within a couple months of that, I switched to that job. So I was working actually for a global hotel company at the time COVID hit. So that was a really interesting time, given that demand cratered in that industry. And I was moved to the COVID response task force actually within a month of lockdown. And so I was really honored to support the company and the hotels and the frontline team members during this very uncertain time, this like black swan event and global health crisis. But you know, like your stress is starting to ratchet up a little bit because it's like the hotels are out there and wondering what they're supposed to be doing. And our, our team is the team that's putting together all of the programs and systems to help them. Then a month after that, my team of nine, there, there were furloughs that came down and 80% of the marketing department were furloughed. And for my team, it was just me and my boss who were not. And of course, I'm again, super grateful to have a job and an income and 
Because the worry was always like, yes, furloughs were only going to be for a certain period of time for the summer, but they did end up doing some layoffs after that fact. And so it was felt good to be able to still be working and stuff, but I was juggling an executive MBA program at the time. And I'm kind of having a little bit of a moment of panic of like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to take on the extra work that comes from all of these people being away. The work still needs to get done. It's me and my boss and I'm juggling the program. How am I going to do it all? And that's really when the stress started to ratchet up. And I had a first episode of throwing up blood that landed me in the ER and uh, a month after that, I actually started in the CMO role. So it was like a very kind of crazy, tumultuous time. And by no means did I think that the new job was going to be any less stressful. I knew it was going to be more stressful and more difficult, but my logical, rational brain and probably my ego was like, this is the dream that you've always wanted, like C-level role and you just, you got to do it. You'll figure it out. And graduation was going to be, that was July. Graduation was going to be in December. And I thought I would be able to make it until then. And so what happened? (laughs) I, you know, to keep all of the plates spinning, I started working up to 20 hours a day for between the two, not every single day, but just in a really unsustainable way at the new job. I was the youngest member on the executive team and was very much treated like the kid's sister and sometimes even worse. And so I just didn't want them to see Mm -hmm. the cracks, the weakness, any of that, because it's like they could smell it and would go in for the kill. Sometimes it was, it was really painful. It was really brutal. And it was a company with mostly women. So it was shocking to me that women would be treating each other in that sort of way. So anyway, I'm trying to keep this facade you know, going at work, trying to graduate too. And it did get to this point where it's like, I'm on the hamster wheel, my legs are moving and I have lost control. Like, I can't even tell you where the movement is coming from because I want to stop, but I just can't, I just can't. And so I did graduate from school, had another episode of the throwing up blood that came uh, a month later in January and then a shingles diagnosis in April. So what's amazing to me too, is that like, shingles didn't happen during that time of the crazy overworking. It came even months later. I, you know, graduated, I'm working less hours or fewer hours, but it's still, there was so much damage that had been done. And I was still walking into a toxic culture and my body was telling me this, you can't do this anymore. So what'd you do? <laughs> well, I had a moment in the doctor's office where I'm told I have shingles and I am overjoyed. And I want to explain that by saying like, that was because I was so just exhausted. And in my very warped mental state at the time, all I could see was like a doctor's note and 10 straight days off of work. And like, that was such a gift because it was a socially acceptable reason. I didn't have to raise my hand and tell the other people I was working with, like, I can't hack it with the way this is going. I, you know, use my voice, any of those things. It was like, here's the doctor's note that's going to let me give me that permission slip to take a break that I just can't give to myself. And I, after that uh, moment of this, these feelings of being overjoyed and just this relief washing over me when the doctor tells me what I've got, I do, I'm so proud of that version of me that did have a bit of an awakening moment of like, okay, Sarah, like this is not a normal response to being told you have an illness that could potentially result in blindness and paralysis. Like this isn't okay. And I, and I'm so proud of you. Like, I know you were doing what you thought you needed to do to have the perfect on paper life or really the perfect on paper resume but this isn't working. And so it was like, I'm going to hit the life reset button. I'm going to, I, I quit the CMO job. I got a new job down in Florida that I moved to in between the two. I went down to Peru to go on a wellness retreat and explore holistic healing modalities. Cause it was like, I'm just desperate. I just felt like my soul was dying and clawing against the walls of my chest to get out. Like every day I was walking into that office because I was having to armor up every day. And it was just like, I've got to do something different. And I couldn't figure out what that would be. So it was like, give me anything. I'll, I'll try anything. So yeah, new job, new, new life, little home by the beach, like total 
reset, prioritizing, well-being, self-care, all of those things down here. And you lived happily ever after and it all went great from there. Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Cause that's how it goes. Well, we, we wish sometimes, I, I know say, it wasn't so simple. So my story was picked up the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, during that time, it's like, it sounds like that in a way because my story was picked up by the Wall Street Journal during that time. And I did a podcast for them where the way it ends is like Sarah found more peace pursuing everyday joy on the water. And all of that is true. And I cut back on working hours. I was like very dedicated to enacting the boundaries, the proper boundaries that I had never set with my job and was doing the deep work too to disentangle my identity and self-worth from my career. But um, I just, at the time, I really didn't have an awareness. And this is where like that, that shingles coming in months after I'd graduated and started to ratchet down my hours. That should have been my first inkling that like burnout is not just the, is not just overworking and the number of hours that you're putting in. Like chronic stress is also tied for us being in situations, staying too long in situations that are not good for us because we're not being respected. We can't use our voices, like think places we know we shouldn't be. That's also a significant driver of burnout. And so that was what was happening. Even though I'm like, I'm not working at night, I'm hitting the yoga mat, I'm meditating, I'm going to the beach, I'm doing all the things. I was dealing with a, a deeply misogynistic culture and a sexual harassment situation that wasn't properly addressed for months. And, and um, I just like, it was on my nascently healing burnout wound, it was just like a paper cut to walk into that organization every day. But I just didn't put it together that that's what was happening until I was getting down to the end of it. It was just like, I can't do this. They did an invest an investigation eventually. One of the comments was even overheard by HR in October. Nothing happened. And I kept pushing for an investigation. It did happen in January. But by that point, it was so clearly very cursory and check the box. You know, like, I, HR put an hour on my call to give me the readout of the investigation and read back to me the like 10 legally approved bullet points, most, most of which were like legal, legal boilerplate. Like um, we have a an open door policy and a professional workplace where everyone is treated with respect kind of things. And like, I know you know this, but you have to keep this confidential. And it's like, okay, that is a good chunk of this alleged investigation readout. And I got off the phone and I was like, I'm not going back in. I can't do it. I just can't do it. Something of the good girl, girl, Sarah broke open. Like she was cracked open by shingles. She was like shattered open by this experience. And I drafted this blistering anti-harassment resignation letter, like power of women's voices. And I took my laptop in the next morning before dawn and I hit send on it, sent it to HR, my boss and the CEO. And I walked out the door. I didn't even give two weeks because I'm like, y'all had four months to deal with this. You don't get two weeks more of my time. I'm done. Right. First of all, good for you. Good for you. Like, yay. Thank I'm you. so glad that you were <laughs> able to, to get yourself out of that, yeah. out of that toxic situation. And I think that something that people often forget is that HR works for the company. They don't work for you. Yes. So it's, oh, you know, yeah. the people in HR want to keep their jobs just as much as you do. Yep. And, yep. and no company wants to deal with like a sexual harassment lawsuit. So it's, yeah. you know, that's something to always, to always keep in mind after you left that job. Like at this point, this is early 2022, right? Yes, correct. Oh, okay. So after you, this is a couple months ago. And after you, after you leave that job, you, like at this point in our general culture, we're kind of becoming aware of this trend, this great resignation, um, where the, we were seeing a lot of pandemic burnout, a lot of people, especially women who were leaving their jobs and yes. making all of these changes. And I'm curious what you as a journalist thought about that, what you did with that information, how you, yes. you know, how you kind of compartmentalize that. Yeah, exactly. Well, so the, with the great resignation, it was, it really started in April, 2021. And that's when they say that it, it really began. And it was a professor named Anthony Klotz from the university of Texas at Austin who coined the term 
And with everything that had happened during the pandemic and the way the labor market was looking on the other side and people hadn't quit in 2020 because they were afraid uh, to quit jobs when everybody was losing their jobs left and right, and we didn't know if the bottom was going to fall out of the economy, he predicted that on the other side, during a period of economic stability and growth coming out of the stimuli or packages, stimulus packages, not really stimuli, I guess, but that they that people would start making more moves. And there was also a bit of this like, awakening to new priorities too that he didn't really talk about but like from a cultural perspective as we were in the middle of the pandemic wondering what was going to happen it's a funny thing to like to think back because we forget that the beginning of it was really very uncertain and scary like we didn't know what was going to happen to our family and friends we didn't know if we'd be okay if we'd have jobs all of these things were like it was it was a lot of stress and very confusing and in that moment we had a lot of personal reckoning to do to be like, okay, well, guess what? Life is pretty darn short and precious. And if I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow anyway, why am I going to keep doing the thing that's making me miserable? And so people started making these moves and I knew other women were doing it too. And now that I'm at great resignation class of 2021 and 2022, I'm just like, I cannot be the only woman who is experiencing this same sort of thing of getting mired in these spin cycles of burnout, going from one toxic culture to another, like what are their stories? What are their, uh, the breaking points and defining moments that led them to seek greater opportunity as well. So it was like, I hadn't done journalism for years, but it felt like this was the time to figure that out because it was like every single day, a new article about a new stat related to the great resignation. And what struck me is that all of those data points that would ladder up into the, you know, 4 million people this month that left their jobs. It's like every single one of those is a deeply personal story. There are very important lessons, wisdom, insight to be learned from that. And so that's why I started talking to women and founded this organization called Race to Rise, which is a journalism project and movement to amplify powerful voices and stories of women from the great resignation of all ages, diverse walks of life, industries, job functions, career stages. Why do you think that it was mostly women who, I mean, I don't know if there's any real data to support this, but anecdotally, yes, it seems that it was, oh, there is. Fantastic. There is um, data, yep. So wh why do you think it is that it was mostly women who, you know, made these evaluations and, you know, in droves just started quitting their jobs? Yeah, definitely. Well, so the the data that I can find as far as the like month by month great resignation gap, they were able to definitively say women are leading the great resignation at its peak in 2021. The quit rate for men was 4.4% and the quit rate for women was 5.5%. Now, that's it, it's like 1.1 difference but that or percentage point difference, but it's a 25% gap. If you look at it, like that's a, a oh, significantly yeah. higher, you know? So it, it was women. And what they were finding is there was, there was a lot of research done by McKinsey and lean in, in their annual women in the workplace report. And what they found in 2020 is that women were spending on average upwards of three hours per day in additional, essentially unrecognized labor as childcare and housework and things like that, as safety nets evaporated during the pandemic and we have childcare facilities closing, schools are closing, we don't have as much support from family and friends to help us take care of our kids and responsibilities. It could also be like elder care too that's part of this as well. Women were spending upwards of three additional hours per day. Now fast forward one more year, the report comes out again, that number has held strong and one in three working mothers are considering either downshifting or leaving the workforce entirely. Then in April of 2022 of this year, Deloitte did a survey of 5,000 women and found that uh, more than 50% of them are saying that they have increased stress. 40% are saying they're burnt out and have either poor or very poor mental health. And 50% want to quit their jobs in the next two years. On a five-year horizon, that skyrockets to 90%. Only 10% of women from that survey intend to be with their current company five years from now. Like those are red alarm numbers. And if we think about like just all of the inequity that was in the workplace to begin with pre-pandemic, 
And I was one of those people, I will admit it, like admittedly say, I never wanted to look at gender in the workplace. I felt like very strongly that we should be looking at other forms of diversity and racial and sexual orientation and you know, ethnic, ethnic, all of these things, religious, et cetera. But for me, because of where I came from, and I never wanted to be looked at any differently as a woman. I didn't want to accept that there were gender differences in the workplace, but they really were still there. And now on the other side of it, with all of this extra stress, the 2022 Women in the Workplace report comes out and finds that women leaders are quitting at a rate of 10.5%, the highest that they have ever recorded in the study. The gap between women and men is higher than it's ever been. And to put it at scale, for every one female director promoted to senior ranks, there are two walking out the door. The CEO of Lean In is like, it's a disastrous situation because we already don't have enough women in leadership and they are walking out at such a fast rate that we're going to have a pipeline issue now. So all of that is to say that we have seen Women getting fed up with all of the extra stress. The report was quoting women who were like, just on the other side of the pandemic, were like, we don't want to take toxic cultures or deal with microaggressions or discrimination and pay uh, inequality. Like all of these things have added up for women across the board, because I've talked to women in their 20s all the way up to their 70s. Women are very fed up. Like the way we work isn't working for us anymore for most women. So when it comes to these, uh, you know, when it comes to this kind of being fed up and walking away from either a toxic culture or a job that doesn't respect you as like a whole human who also has other responsibilities or anything like that, are these women then just like, I don't know if they have kids, just like becoming stay-at-home moms or and just leaving the workforce entirely? Are they going on to found their own companies and movement? Do we have yeah. any information on, you know, what ha- what is the next step once you leave that job that just doesn't respect you? It's a, it's a great question. So from my research and interviews, I have actually yet to interview a woman who has stepped out of the workforce entirely. Even the women who are staying at home, taking care of their kids, they're doing some kind of little bit of work. So it's just so fascinating to me because the great resignation has had this misconception and you hear this common refrain of like, nobody wants to work anymore. Like I just- yeah. We're From all, all of us lazy project, millennials. In my, yeah. Uh, right. Exactly. And those Gen Z TikTokers, you know, filming their quitting, walking out the door. It's like, for me, that's not what it's been about. And that's not what this project has been about at all. I know that they're they're out there too. And, and the bulk of the women that I found have really come from LinkedIn, where you would still be on there if you're more still engaging in work. But no, it's like, for me, the split has been women are going to other corporate jobs. It's not like they're completely walking out the door. And that's what the, the women in the workplace report from 2022 found, they called it the great breakup. Women are breaking up with bad companies that have toxic cultures where they're being passed over for promotions. They're doing office housework where it's like they, as the female are expected to take the notes and order the lunches. Like women are just done with that, but they're going to other organizations in the hope that they find a better culture, better opportunities, et cetera. And then on the other side, a lot of women were spinning up new opportunities for themselves. I had one woman who went from a project manager job to becoming a full-time singer-songwriter, and she now does contracting work in the project management space to get herself kind of like money when she needs it. But for the most part, she's maintaining an autonomous life to pursue her music dream. One woman was a civil engineer, which like, if you want to talk about sort of pension unicorns, like she had one of those but she was miserable. And so she actually quit. She'd already during the pandemic founded an affirmation card company, decided to go full in on that and is also helping women in California negotiate their maternity leaves. Because I, I didn't know that that is a whole thing that you can actually get like 10 months of maternity leave in California with the government policies that are there and you don't know how to do it. Yeah. It's like a whole thing. I'm moving I to California. No but yeah. What? Wow. I know. Paid? I know. 10 months paid? I know. It's crazy. Yes, like 10 months. Now, she was also working for a government agency, too. So I'm sure that that makes a I bit of a difference. But I guess there are certain laws in to this California who are going to be so sad provide. 
there's I know that there are Europeans listening to this who are going to be so sad at like the two Americans who are like, oh, my God, they get 10 months to take care of a new baby like <laughs> after birth. Like, yes, yes, we accept crumbs for child care in this country. It is pathetic. Yeah. Uh, yes. You, yeah. No, it's uh, wow. 10 months in California. Wow. I hope that if you're listening to this in California, then Google that. Look into that. You mentioned that yes. you that you were not that you didn't want to accept gender differences in the workplace, that you just didn't want to look at it, that you didn't want to pay attention to it. What are some of the gender differences that come up in the workplace? How can we better navigate those so that we don't end up in a miserable situation? Yeah, most definitely. It's a, it's a very sticky thing because it's a lot of unconscious biases that are at play. If you think about it, the workplace was designed by men for men. It wasn't until 1972 with the Equal Rights Amendment that men had equal protection in the workplace. So even even though we were working, obviously, before that, not all women, right, because it was still the expectation uh, for decades that women stayed stayed home and took care of the kids. But like then we were granted equal protection under the law in the workplace in the early 90s. So 50 years ago which sounds like sometimes like, oh, 50 years ago, that's a long time. But like 50 years ago, when you think about changing a monolithic system like the workplace and helping everybody along the way to like come to a place of believing in equality and changing the systems that have to be adapted to make that a possibility, like 50 years is actually not that long of a period of time. And so we forget that there are these undercurrents. And it's just, honestly, it's just like racism and any sort of like discrimination, any anything along those lines. Like these are very insidious aspects of our, our old ways of living that have imbued even our current society with these still remaining toxic beliefs. And um, yeah, it's like, it's, it's a funny thing, right? Because it's in our subconscious. That's the hard thing. Is like, even if it's not consciously at the forefront, we don't even realize that some of the ways some of the systems have been set up discriminate against men and or not against men, against women and other, you know, minorities and things like that. So it's just like it's a really tough thing to dismantle it. Now, as a woman, if you are going into an organization, it it's a great question, Rivki. Like that is the million dollar question is like, how do you know as you're interviewing and figuring out if a company is going to be an equitable organization? I think really like benefits and leave policies typically speak to that. To your point of maternity leave, I mean, maternity leave isn't great pretty much anywhere, but your best companies that are more progressive related to gender policies will have thought those things through and have better benefits too for things like uh child care helping with you know being able to put your money into a fund uh, a flexible savings kind of a thing for child care things like that will tend to indicate that a company has thought about these things versus other organizations that haven't it can flag a little bit and i think too when you talk about flexibility That is the number one key success driver for working moms in the workplace, according to the mom project. So companies that have true, not just lip service, but like true policies around flexible working and hybrid work. And, you know, even if they're letting you work remotely completely, like those are going to be your companies that are going to be better for working women because they have a respect to your point of us and our humanity, that we are not corporate drones walking in and that that's all we should, you know, we should be during that eight, nine, 10 hours a day or whatever it is. The companies that realize that we can't just check our personal lives at the door the way it was pre-pandemic. And, you know, and it's also like, leave it at the door and also like, don't let us know about it. Like keep that messiness to yourself. I don't even want to (laughs) know. Right. Like it just- now, on the other other side, it becomes the companies who have a better awareness around what that means to us as individuals, as humans, as people who love our families and have more responsibilities, like the ones that think about that are going to be better for for women. And what I love too, is I was having a conversation about a a woman who helps companies create 
more equitable cultures, diverse, equitable, and inclusive cultures. And she was saying, you know, the thing here is like flexibility in remote work isn't just good for working moms. It's good for everyone. It's a rising tides lifts all boats situation. So like everybody calm down. And it's not that you're just trying to make accommodations for working moms. Like everybody benefits with that. When I know, even though I, I don't have children of my own, but I can go and I can even take my dog to the vet if I need to. Like, and if you're a man, you can do the things you need to do and like maybe go take care of your parents and take them to a doctor's appointment. Like the more we just look at everyone as hu humans with very messy, complicated lives, even as much as we try to keep them uh, separate, the better off we'll be. Yeah, I, I'd also think that from a like from a corporate perspective, the more accommodating that you're willing to be, the first of all, the better, like the higher quality person that you will attract. But aside yeah. from that, it'll also just end up being that, you know, pe people like to meet in the middle. Nobody wants to be giving 100%. And then it's just like, well, this is your job. That's what you're supposed to be doing. It's well, if you can meet me halfway, then, yeah. you know, then you can give that much, you know, that higher, that higher level of, of effort and just really caring about where it is that the company goes and, and what they do. You've mentioned Raise to Rise a couple of times. It is a wonderful play on words. It's R-A-Z-E, which is like raising a building, um, you know, knocking it down to rise. And yes. um, I'd love if you could tell me a little bit more about, you know, what the organization is, what it does, and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Yes, definitely. No, I appreciate you getting the the little bit of entendre with that. But yeah, raise as in like, burn it down to build it back up stronger. It's kind of like the idea of what happens with a forest fire or controlled burn that sometimes you clear out what is is dying and no longer working. And then you allow for new growth. You build it back up better than before. And really what it has been is, uh, is really capturing women's stories from the great resignation. Some of them are, are shared on the website, but a lot of the stories and conversations are going into a book that will be coming out. And it's been such an unbelievable project because I felt like there was a thread to be pulled here, but it has been confirmed just so many times over with the just incredible support from women and those wanting to share their stories that it's expanded beyond. I've talked to women who are stuck in jobs and feel like they can't quit. You know, we've had really great conversations about the things that hold us back and like watching women walk into these invisible walls in their mind, right? It's, uh, it's not even that we just feel like we can't make a move. There can be very real circumstances that hold us back even in switching to another corporate job. And that is not to be discounted because it could be like a health issue and I need to stay on this health plan and I can't go somewhere else. Or it can be like money. Money and gravity are both very real. And so it's not to discount any of those things. But what we do want to realize is that a lot of times we have self-imposed limitations and limiting beliefs as to what we can and can't do related to our leaps. So those conversations have been immensely powerful in helping me to understand the, the roadblocks and the things that keep us stuck. And then I've also interviewed women pre-great resignation, those who have a bit more space between their leap, looking back with hindsight, and it's all really woven together into what's becoming a book that charts the six stages that we go through in walking away from a job and a toolkit that helps us become more conscious architects of our careers moving forward. Because another piece of the puzzle that has come into play here is that people are not still 100% comfortable with this idea of quitting and talking about quitting jobs. Like it can be seen as uncouth and taboo for people outside of the TikTok generation. Like, yes, there are people out there filming themselves quitting, which is like the most mind-blowing thing. Like, it's not even after the fact. It's like, I'm going to live quit for y'all. Like, <laughs> it's so crazy. But for the most part, like, that's been something we don't really talk about. And so what has come out of it is like a toolkit that helps us understand how to quit in such a way that we're being thoughtful and intentional about our next move. We're planning our timing in a way that doesn't overwhelm our nervous systems. We're shoring up stability in other parts of our lives because you don't want to have a shaken snow globe where all your snow across, you know, financial health, 
personal life, relationships and career, then you make a big career change. Like all of that is too much for us to do at once. So it's like, how do we shore up and make the rest of our lives stable so that we can make a move? It's like, how do you do all these things? Cause we've never been taught any of this. So it becomes this toolkit to, to support us, to help to really make moves. We're not going to regret surveys have found depending on which ones you look at, anywhere between 20% of the people surveyed and 70% of great resignationers regret their move. Now, I don't believe this is a Sarah hypothesis, again, just as a journalist with my own project, that I don't believe that it is the quitting itself that is the wrong move because we were having these feelings of knowing that something wasn't right for us for a very good reason. And I will say like, trust that part of you that knows this is not about running away and making like reactive decisions, but when you know, you know, so you, you honor that. But if we just jump into the next thing without being really thoughtful, we're just chasing the next title, the bigger paycheck, the whatever, we can have that buyer's remorse on the other side. So it's a full scope toolkit to help us with all of those things. That sounds fantastic. And I cannot wait to read it once it once it comes out. If awesome. somebody wants to learn more about you, Sarah, and about Raise to Rise, where can they go? Yes, they can go to raise to rise.com and you can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram as Sarah J. McElroy. Fantastic. The last thing I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes on the show, and it's always so wonderful to see the different answers. So to you, Sarah McElroy, what does it mean to make an impact? It means showing up as me every single day and trusting myself because I know that this is something I never would have done before, Ripkey. This is like the antithesis of good girl, logical, rational Sarah to go down a road like this, to rock the boat and be like, I'm going to shake, I'm going to talk to people so we can shake systems here. And to be able to do that and to make a bigger impact we have to take bigger risks and we have to trust ourselves that we can get there i love that thank you so much for coming on today sarah i really appreciate it thank you ricky thanks for listening if you'd like to learn more about sarah her links are in the show notes on the last episode i spoke with chelsea bear about her life with cerebral palsy listen to it wherever you're hearing this one the be impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion the clothing line i created because i believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 18 people listed by Aura Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getaura.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Squits. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.